Everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. I appreciate you uh, choosing this podcast. Really, really, really cool conversation today with my old pal LZ Granderson. He's the sports and culture columnist on the LA Times. You can also hear him on ESPN Radio, but he has a new podcast called Life Out Loud. And LZ, he's he's really very interesting. He's a he's an out uh, game black gay man who is in the sports world, and he's able to handle that intersection and bring something, his perspective to it in a really cool, interesting way. And he's, he's kind of evolved through that whole process too. So it's great catching up with him. Uh, he was on my show, the nightly show a while ago. <laughs> we had a good time, but um, I really like the stuff he's putting out there. It's really cool. Always good to talk to LZ Grandison. And we talked for a long time, so I'm um, not going to do much of a way in here uh, guys. Sorry. The conversation took up most of the time we got, you know, but I wanted to catch you up on a couple of things. Um, it's sometimes, by the way, sometimes it takes me a while to get my gumption up, you know, to to really go at stuff. You know, and part of it is I, sometimes I just don't have the time or I just don't have, I just don't feel like talking about some things. They just bug me in a sense where I feel like I'm adding to the clatter that's that's already out there as opposed to bringing what I feel is my own perspective to it and not just kind of repeating what everyone else is saying. I try my best not to do that. Of course, there's overlap and that type of thing. But that's what I try to give you guys here is my opinion on this, my take on it, especially if it's contrary to what's going on out there, whether it's the right or the left. You know me, I try not to choose sides. I consider myself center left, if you will, you know, but that really doesn't mean anything. Like I said, it means half the time I disagree with myself. But I try to I try to use what I feel is the a common sense approach to most issues. You know, I say most because, you know, I'm I'm human. You know, I have my agendas just like everyone else. But, you know, I try to do that, especially because I'm conscious of the fact that I'm presenting something to an audience, not just talking to a friend, you know. So it is a little different um, when you're doing that. But I do try to encourage like my kids and, you know, uh, people to. Get out. It's good to get outside of your own opinions, you know, and I know that sounds weird. And just, you know, hear something else that is something you disagree with. And even if you disagree with it at the end of hearing it, it's good to just hear it out and just let it be what it is without trying to change it. Just let it exist. Let it sit there. I spend a lot of time listening to a lot of different opinions and some of it I can barely take, just like I know how you guys feel about things. And some of it I go, okay, I get that. That's interesting. But I consciously do it. I consciously do it. And I do it all the time because I don't want to be an asshole of my opinion, you know, that I'm so stuck on it. I just can't see anything else. And by the way, it's irrelevant whether I'm right or wrong. It's being an asshole of the opinion. So you can be right, but you're still an asshole of your right opinion, you know. And that to me is one of the issues out there that I just don't like, you know. And people can get it. When people are right, they can get really fucking arrogant, too, because <laughs> they they use that I'm right just to be very arrogant. And they don't realize when they're wrong that arrogance is still there and it looks really nasty. It looks nasty when you're right. And there's a lot of arrogance. And you know what it goes back to? It goes back for me for, to playing sports. 
And I always believed in sportsmanship that you, you know, you try to beat someone's ass, you know, when you're playing, but as soon as the game is over, I ain't mad at you, you know, shake hands or whatever, you know, and um, I wish we, you know, I wish people had more of that relationship with their opinions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that uh, a point of view does not make you a better human being. How you treat people makes you a good human being, not your point of view, you know. So that is the important thing. How we treat others in the world is the thing that makes the difference to the world and to humanity and all that kind of stuff. Doing good things in the dark is a good thing to do where you're not looking for anything in return. You know, it's a good thing. It's good stuff, guys, putting that kind of stuff out in the universe. You know, those are the things that I feel like as a society, we got to get into the helping humanity without an agenda type of space as much as we can where where we can, you know, and not tied so much to agenda all the time. And by agenda, I mean a political point of view or whatever it is. So anyhow, that's me and a little soapbox for you, a little soapbox. The thing that I will advocate for that I feel like I, I want to advocate for now, and I think you're going to hear me talking about this more. I'm not an expert on it or anything, but it's mental health. And part of the self-care area. I really feel, I was talking to my daughter today. We had a long conversation about this and I was so proud of her because she's doing some of that work in her life right now in certain areas in her life planning, you know, and it just made me think this is so important guys. We've been through some shit this past year. And I mean, globally, I mean the whole world, not just this country. And yes, and I know the world's been through some horrible things, world wars and all that, but the pandemic is a little different. I think because it didn't have, there wasn't war and that type of thing where you're expected to, you know, you kind of gird yourself against, you know, that type of thing. A pandemic, you don't know how to, how to uh, protect yourself, I guess, against that or how to behave in it. We didn't know how long it was going to be and this being isolated from other people and now having to jump back in and, I think there's so much PTSD and with all the people dying and that kind of stuff and losing loved ones and, you know, this mysterious thing that's doing it, you know, self-care and mental health is going to be a huge thing this year. And I think we need to look out for ourselves and look for, look out for each other in this. So that's what I'm going to be doing a lot in my work, looking out for you guys, looking out for me, looking for ways where we can, you know, find some we'll call it uh, spiritual and emotional nourishment is what we're going to be looking for. So that's what I'm thinking about. I'm going to be away for a few weeks. As I said last week, I've got some projects coming up. I've shared some of them on social media and that kind of stuff. I'm just, you know, brother's got to get some work done. Uh, I'm writing a pilot right now. Uh, My company is at NBC Universal and, you know, I've got to finish writing that. And then I'm also going to be acting some more. I love acting. It's fun to drop in and do stuff. Um, A little film part that I got. It's going to be, it's not a big taker of my time, but it's it's a fun taker of my time, which is good. So I'm looking forward to that. So a few things coming up in August that I'm going to be busy doing, um, as well as all my other projects that I have going on that I try to compartmentalize. And I'll keep you guys abreast of them. By the way, if you want to hear more about the stuff that I'm doing, just uh, reach out and ask, and I'm happy to share it with you. I just don't automatically do it sometimes. That's it. We got LZ Granderson coming up. 
I hope you guys are having a good summer. I hope you're taking care of yourself, taking care of your loved ones, and taking care of the occasional people that doesn't expect it. You know, that uh, paying it forward type of thing in the mental health game. All right, we'll be back. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's the summertime. It's time, you know, to... Have a little good conversation about a lot of different things like sports and culture. And who better than Mr. LZ Grandison, who's the sports and culture columnist for the LA Times. You can hear his dulcet tones in ESPN radio. But guys, this is a treat. He has a new podcast that is so cool, and it is called Life Out Loud, and it's out there now. And it really is the intersection of queerness and LZ, uh, some great uh, personal stories and all that stuff, his point of view in the world. Mr. LZ Granderson, welcome to Black on the Air, man. Thank you so much for having me. I didn't know if I was ever allowed back to your ecosystem after <laughs> I was on your TV show. So I'm glad to see that whatever I did wrong, you've forgiven me for. You didn't do anything <laughs> wrong. You were awesome. Who doesn't love LZ Granderson? No, it's great, man. We had a good time. Man, that seems like so long ago now. My I God. know. I- I know that was back before the racism was still underground. <laughs> it hadn't come out yet. So it hadn't come yeah. Fully out <laughs> yeah, it was out for us. It was out for us. <laughs> but it is interesting that all that stuff that we were covering then became like this novelty for people. Like I would say white people Columbus did last summer, you know, and we were like <laughs> doing it, you know, in 2015 talking about all that stuff. You know, I, it's I know it's, it's been so. I've been talking to a couple of elected officials recently and they they were saying, I can't believe how divided the country is now. Yeah. And I was like, now? Yeah. <laughs> now. Now. Uh, oh, so you thought because we weren't marching that we were good? We were never good. <laughs> let's define division. Let's define that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's some terms. But, you know, <sighs> all of that stuff. And some of it goes in cycles in terms of its perception, in terms of th- how things are going. So you never know, you know, I, I, I think talking about it when nobody else is, is what I kind of like to do. You know, when everybody else is talking about it, I'm like, whatever, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah, it's like, I talked about racism first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, I was the first, no one else talked about it before. That. <laughs> but, uh, Let's talk about your pod first. Let's start with that. And uh, it's called Life Out Loud, right? And uh, how did this how did this venture come about? Well, you, you know, it really started with me trying to cover this, you know, the previous administration. Mm-hmm. 
and seeing what was happening underneath the surface. So, you know, mm. every time I was writing or was on like ABC or something, it was about mm-hmm. like something he's tweeted or something that caught headlines. Right. But underneath the headlines was a lot of nefarious stuff, whether you were talking about the makeup of the federal judges that were being appointed, right, mm-hmm. for instance, or, you know, the many different ways in which his family was monetizing the White House for their own good. Right. And then for my community, for the LGBTQ community, we were having so many of our rights slowly dismantled mm-hmm. and it wasn't being covered. And so I came up with the idea because one, I was, was already working at ABC. And so what I wanted was a traditional legacy network, mm-hmm. um, having a space that was dedicated for this conversation and for this collection of people and Americans. And so that was the, the impetus behind it. I just wanted to make sure there was somewhere at ABC where queer topics and queer policies and things impacting us always had a home. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that I always feel some of these issues are kind of agnostic when it comes to who's in office, like they're always kind of surreptitiously happening. You know, have you felt like the issues you were talking about have come to light but, or are they still kind of just kind of bubbling underneath the surface? And it's your job to say, hey, people, look, this is still going on here. Well, it's, it's our, it's everyone's job to, to kind of say that, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's about, you know, misogyny and, and sexism, whether it's about race issues or whether mm-hmm. it's about, you know, anti-LGBTQ uh, laws that are being passed. I mean, more than 250 on the state level, anti-LGBTQ laws are being, you know, introduced. And most mm-hmm. of them are attacking children. And those conversations just don't have a huge place right now mm-hmm. in media. and. So Why do you think is, that is? Um, well, there's a lot of factors. I mean, first and foremost, uh, we in the media have a tendency, especially now more so in the past, to go to the next shiny object. Mm-hmm. So even if it's really, really important, um, right. if something cool happens, like a plane disappears, you know, near Malaysia, yeah. we're going to look at that for like the next five months, right? Oh, like, CNN will do that for a year. <laughs> like, they love, like, CNN loves plane crashes. They can't get enough listen, of it. I have no idea, mm-hmm. Larry. What else happened during that time period? Because that flight disappeared and that's all people talked about. That was it. Oh. That was it. And yeah. so we have that tendency, right, to kind of ride that particular sort of narrative wave. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like just the exhaustion of it all, right? Right. Like people reach a certain peak of talking about, say, like race in America, right? Mm-hmm. And then like going, well, people are tired of talking about it, so let's find something else. It's almost like the MVP voting. Like Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest of all time. LeBron James, arguably the greatest of all time. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, arguably the greatest of all time, right? Mm-hmm. And without fail, the writers would go, yeah, let's give the MVP to someone else now. I'm bored. Right, <laughs> like, right. Just because <laughs> it had to do with them and now what right. was actually happening. Right. Right. So, like, that's another facet of the media. Like, because we're in it all the time, we get bored. And so mm-hmm. we decide to shift whether or not the topic is, is truly exhausted or not. Yeah. It's like um, I was talking about Zeitgeist a few weeks ago and I was like, like people, I don't think like comedians and like some people, they don't stop being funny. It's just the Zeitgeist is just done with them for a while, you know, (laughs) you know, for a lot of people. And the Zeitgeist um, in a weird way has a lot to do with what people are caring about for these issues, which can be very dangerous for some issues because you'll have some people who can take advantage of that in you know, put forward laws or get rid of laws or that sort right. of thing, right? Or start a network like Fox. 
<laughs> Although I will say, I, I felt when Fox started, it had a reason to be because they weren't wrong about right. uh, the left-leaning uh, news media. And Fox was an alternative in the beginning. It became more partisan hacky, I believe, like uh, during Obama, during those years, you know, where it well, just really went over the top with that. It felt well, like they had to, me, to talk you know. about race. And right. once you do that, you have to start making decisions. <laughs> yes. What side are you going to be on? <laughs> what side yes. are you gonna be on? <laughs> right. Exactly. That Which is, is unfortunate. Taking sides is interesting. You know, um, like I think George, the George Floyd thing last summer made it very easy for people to take a side for that, you know? So it was an interesting event because it was easy for people to say, that is obviously wrong. I'm against that. Like even people that would be uncomfortable taking that side. But then once we get past George Floyd and we get into other issues, taking the side isn't as easy and it becomes a little more complicated for a lot of people. And that's where we get in the messiness of some of these issues, especially when you mix religion and culture and mm-hmm. all these other things in it. Right. Because then you start asking people to do some self inventory. Exactly. It's really easy to point the finger like going, oh, that officer was wrong. But then the next right. step is peeling back those layers, which inevitably gets to you. And that's what things is uncomfortable. It's, it's part of the reason why I wrote a piece mm-hmm. uh, for the L.A. Times a couple of weeks ago about the attacks on critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the reason why Republicans, particularly white Republicans, are so against it is because at the end of the day, they realize that their grandparents may have voted to support Jim Crow laws. And that made them uncomfortable. So they much rather just pretend as if we're not going to go back and discuss any of those things, as opposed to ask ourselves, how exactly do we have both Jim Crow, Jim Crow and the greatest generation ever existing at the same time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, because if you have this, then how are you the greatest generation of all time? Mm-hmm. If these were the laws you were legislating, endorsing and voters supported. Right. right. So but we don't want to have that conversation because then you get real messy. Yeah, I talked about it where I said, I look, okay, I'll take your side. I too am not for critical race theory. How about this? I'm for critical race facts. All right. Slavery, <laughs> critical race fact. Jim Crow, critical like race that. fact. <laughs> you know, let's just deal in the facts then. Let's get yeah, I agree. Yeah. Who wants a theory? No theory. Yeah, I don't want to try to prove a theory. Let's no just deal theory. with the facts. Yeah. I, I agree. I think it does open up a wound that people aren't willing to look at realistically. They want to gloss it over and blame everything else. I think because people don't know that uh, they, uh, the nature of racism, people always ascribe to hatred and that's not necessarily true. A lot of the racism has to do with superiority also, you know, where the, that's why you had like, here, here's the thing that I think people don't realize. People say, you know how many white people were in the abolitionist movement? Yes, I will agree with you. And that was fantastic. And those people thought that human beings should not be enslaved. But did they think blacks were their equal? Answer that question. Mm. Because we definitely know. Now um, we got a problem. There was a church in Manhattan. I forgot the name of the church. But there was a small church in Manhattan that was very, very proud of itself because it had an integrated congregation. Right. But you peel back one layer, Larry, and you yeah. find out that the black people had to stay upstairs and the white people were all downstairs. And I was like, if y'all bitches don't stop with this bullshit, what you what are you to what? Yeah. So like the, clearly 
you didn't think to your point that they were equal. They didn't think they were beneath them, but they also yes. didn't think they were on their same level. Correct. And to me, that's the part that is uncomfortable because I would agree with the premise that not everybody had hate in their heart, you know, like lived around hate in their heart. They had superiority in their heart, which is right. different, you know, and right. that's a different animal. And so I understand that they would push back against that. I'm talking about people that ordinarily you would say, you know, they're, they're not trying to do bad to other people is what I'm talking right. about. You know, as right. opposed to there was also a legacy of hate groups, you know, that were actively right. had hate, not just for black people, but anybody that didn't fit into a certain norm. You know, right. it's, it's like that great opening scene. And I believe it's one night in Miami. Yes. Where Jim Brown visits, you know, the owner of the oh, Jim Browns. Great. Chef's kiss. Right. And it's like it's like it perfectly embodies. Yes. Perfect. You know, that dynamic in the past. And. Unfortunately, a lot of that dynamic today. That was a brilliant scene because you didn't know what was going to happen in that scene. You right. know, and those are my favorite type of cinematic uh, scenes uh, where it, it became uncomfortable because you didn't know what was going to happen, you know. Right. And then that inevitable thing happens. But Jim Brown's reaction to it is also interesting because I felt his reaction was not contemporary, which I appreciated. Right. You know, because many times filmmakers will want our characters to have a contemporary point of view right. on that. But they kept Jim Brown in his time. And I thought, bravo, guys, because you're exactly right. right. What's he going to do? Right. Exactly. Especially given where he was located. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they did a really good job of establishing I he by himself, y'all. <laughs> and what was interesting about that, and this is what I mean about the hate and the superiority. I believe that that character, the way that it was presented, you know, really, I'll say, I'll use the word love, even though it's not proper, but, you know, had affection for Jim Brown, you know, thought yep. the world of him, you know, admired yep. him, all these things, but he was still beneath them. Sorry, niggers can't come in the house. Right, right. I mean, oh, if it were so up close. to me, Jim, if it were up to me, I right. would let niggers in the house, but. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> we were, you were so close. You speak the English, your yeah. pants are pulled up. Oh, man. You were on the, oh. excuse the analogy, but you were on the five yard line. Right, right there. Uh -huh. Right there. But unfortunately, uh -huh. the Patriots intercepted the ball, Russell Wilson, and so you don't win a Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh gosh. So, 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 yeah, I think there's so much of that, Larry, that still happens in micro levels that, uh -huh. that we, as black people or as minorities in general, we just learn to negotiate or deal with. Right. But if anyone ever just really stopped to ask us the truth, we would uh -huh. tell them, but they don't stop to ask the truth. Yeah. It's why people don't understand what microaggressions are when it comes to race. They always feel that a microaggression is just a slight that why are you mad about just a slight? Well, it's not so much that it's what it's connected to. It's connected to this history right. of this feeling that you're not as good in. And like the, a classic microaggression, which has happened to me so many times is where I go up to a counter and the person is, doesn't see me and I'm waiting there for like a couple of minutes. And right before the person turns around, a white person comes up and they don't look at me. They look right at the right person and says, can I help you? You know, and like, motherfucker, that really happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> motherfucker, I've been standing here. And then if I say something, oh, sorry, I didn't know, you know, like, like I'm the asshole for saying, right. you know, like here, here, here I am, you know, I exist. 
it, it's, I'm in Provincetown, Massachusetts right now. Mm-hmm. And it's my first, you know, time here. And I'm working really hard just to be gay. <laughs> I didn't know that required work, actually. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the black part of me keeps showing up. Right, right, right. I keep trying to tell the black person, no, 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 no. This is gay time. Yeah. Don't pay attention. This is gay time. <laughs> Don't pay attention to all the little things that are pissing you off. Like, yeah. there's a tower here that everyone's excited about because it's like the tower where the pilgrims used to use right. to look out for the ships and things like that. Right. And I was like, y'all know what was on those ships? Are we going to talk about this? <laughs> no? Okay. You know what? Uh, Let me just be gay <laughs> and look at the cute boys and not think about who was on those ships that this tower is looking out for. Right. They landed on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock was the name of a guy, of a guy that worked at the ship. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, talk. I want to talk about that the black and queer intersection there and get into sports because you came up at an interesting time where you're able to see the shift in, you know, acceptance of this, the, you know, where you started out where it's the taboo of taboos, not just being, being out as a homosexual, but being out and black, right. you know, obviously has, it's, again, you talk a little bit about your journey, LZ, because I know you, you touch on it a bit in your podcast, but uh, it'd be great for people to hear kind of what was your process and some of the things you went through. And you asked the question on your show, when did you first become aware of, you know, right. this thing, did you have an epiphany uh, at a certain age oh, or that type of thing? Or? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For, for, I had always been very cognizant, Larry, of my same sex attractions, mm-hmm. though I didn't have a vocabulary for it. Okay. Like Luke Duke, right? Like I was always like, wow, Luke Duke's so cool. He's so great. He, uh-huh. he always gets the bad guy. He That's gets away funny. from Boss Hog. And then I got older. I was like, going, you just wanted to fuck Luke Duke. You didn't care about his wow. destiny, about whether or not you know, it's like, That's so funny. So, but by the time I got the vocabulary for it, um, it I was like a sophomore in high school. High school. Okay. Yeah. By the time mm-hmm. I really pieced it together, um, and I was watching this movie called Torch Zone Trilogy. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Matthew Broderick played Harvey Feinstein, Firestein's uh, lover. Mm-hmm. And until then, I just thought I liked Matthew Broderick movies, mm-hmm. you know, because I thought he was cool and blah, blah, blah. It was in that moment, seeing him with another man, that, mm. I was, that everything kind of flashed. And I was like, mm. oh, I want to be with Matthew Broderick. I'm gay. Mm-hmm. Oh shit! Okay, all right, hold on, hold on. It's gonna be all right. Like it was really because I was by myself. Um, mm-hmm. It was like eleven thirty at night. I was watching this movie on like on cable, might have been HBO or something, Showtime, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really hit me that everything kind of pieced together. And I would say part of the reason why I was so confused about it mm-hmm. was because I hadn't seen me on television being. Right gay before. I had seen no representation. They didn't Mm -hmm. tell us that James Baldwin was gay. They didn't tell us that Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bayer Rustin put together the March on Washington. They they didn't tell us any of that. So I knew about gay people but I just assumed that was some white shit. (laughs) And and it wasn't until that moment that I realized oh that 
it's what I am. This is what I have to figure out. And so it was like a, it was a process because you're mm-hmm. right. When you're not represented because of your skin color, mm-hmm. um, it is harder to figure that part of your life out. And the first piece that I wrote for CNN, the very, very first piece that I wrote for CNN, the editor, Rich Gallen, asked me if there was anything that I wanted to say. Like, whatever I wanted to say, they would publish it. Mm-hmm. And the first piece I wrote was, um, gay is not the new black, black is still black. Right. Yes. And, and <laughs> there was, um, there were, you know, put it this way, um, a lot of white folks weren't happy with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some black folks weren't happy with me. Mm-hmm. But I knew I was speaking truth to power. Because mm-hmm. I had been to those dinners where it's uh, 200 white people, five black people, and four of them are trying to avoid eye contact because we're afraid that if we start making eye contact, it looks like we're having an NAACP meeting. Mm-hmm. And so we try to stay apart from one another. And I would try to make eye contact with my brothers and they wouldn't make eye contact with me back. And I was like, you made a choice. Mm-hmm. And I understand you chose to be gay. And right now, this is like the 90s or 2000. And mm-hmm. right now, still, if you choose to be gay, that means you must adhere to a white paradigm, a white sensibility of what that means. You can't bring your blackness. Mm-hmm. It's a painful place to be. Yeah. And I see those brothers all the time, Larry. Wow. Where they still feel like they have to make a choice and mm-hmm. they choose that versus this. And on the flip side, some choose blackness over respecting a sexual orientation. Mm. And that's where the download comes from. Right, right. And for those that don't know what the download is, of course, uh, <laughs> it is one of the, man, it has got to be one of the most difficult parts of being in the closet because you are seriously acting out a straight lifestyle. Were you on the download for a while? Because you married, you were married to a woman at one point, right? Was that considered yep, the download or or the download you're actively uh, seeing other people while you're married or whatever? Right. 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 As opposed, I, was, right. Go ahead, I wasn't sorry. doing that. I mm-hmm. was doing something that I think is even worse than the down low. Mm-hmm. Because in the down low, while you're not being honest with the person you're in a marriage with or relationship with. Or, or you have you an are, arrangement. Right. You are right. at least acknowledging that this exists. And you're, right. you're at least expressing this part of you, even mm-hmm. if it's not in the most healthy ways. What I was doing was I was an evangelical Christian at the time. Oh, and I was wow. trying to pray it away. So mm-hmm. that was even worse because not only was I wrestling with the commitment that I had made, mm-hmm. but I was also denying my very being in the process. Mm-hmm. At least Download Brothers got laid. I was still like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was praying it away or yeah. trying to pray it away and hating that part of me, not allowing mm-hmm. that part of me to be expressed while also trying to maintain a loving relationship with my wife. Mm-hmm. Awful, awful existence. The, the church. Um, there's a lot of things that are really, really positive. I'm a spiritual sure. person. I believe in God. I gave my right. life to Christ. I don't regret any of that. Mm-hmm. But religiosity is killing people. Mm-hmm. What uh, Did you do a kind of gay conversion therapy? In I did days? a little bit of that. What was that? that. Can, can you describe what that is? Because we hear about it, but we don't hear it a lot of details. Most, it was the most self-hating thing Mm-hmm. I've ever seen. And I'm talking, and I'm aware of who Candace Owens is. 
So mm-hmm. I'm saying that you <laughs> like mm-hmm. self-hating, self-hating so thing. Right. Because <laughs> it's like a group of gay men, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Some of them are all gathered together, mm-hmm. counseling each other out of our gayness. Mm. And it's the guy who I didn't go to a facility. I was actually sitting um, in my pastor's, my associate pastor's home, and he was playing the videotapes of these meetings. So that's how I went through the process. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to use stereotypes to talk about people, but when he opened his mouth <laughs> and the purse <laughs> fell out and right. all the, the purse fell and out, everything else, and I was pearls. like sitting there, like going, "Are you kidding me right now?" Oh, wow. He's sitting there. Literally going, I love women. Women are so sexy. And it's just like, who would want to be with them? And I'm sitting there like going, what the fuck's going on here? Right, right. But, and it was like, and I'm telling myself, listen to these words. These words will save your life. Mm. Well, also the other half of my body, like going, this dude is still gay. I don't know what he's talking about. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why my associate pastor has me sitting here listening to this thinking this is going to be the reason why I stopped having these feelings. Mm-hmm. Like it was craziness. So I got out of that. I accepted the fact that I couldn't pray my gay away no more than right. I could play my blackness away. And right. once I started coming out, then um, having peace with who I was as a black gay man became mm-hmm. significantly easier. Yeah, I feel that religion is the last institutional uh, component that needs to be dismantled for full, like, you know, gay integration, queer integration, you know, where it doesn't have that type of judgment. But it, it's a tough one because, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's, it, it is tough for, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I would say the number one reason is that you know, people don't really know the history of the Bible mm-hmm. and how it was put together and who King James was, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. when you do a little bit of research and you find out that King James was well into his 40s before he, like, married a 15-year-old girl that they forced him to marry, but he really, like, hanging out with his homeboy. Yeah. You know, things get uncomfortable for people. <laughs> yeah, there's a great book, by the way, about the King James Bible. And I can't remember the name of it. I read it years ago, but it has all of that info in it. It's fantastic, Jim. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's and it, it makes and the, and they were real slick. I will give him props, Larry, for this because there are definitely there's definitely a a, a a passage in the verse. I believe it's in Corinthians where it, where it instructs you not to ask difficult questions. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> well, the- <laughs> asking these questions will somehow be sinful. So you didn't want to be sinful, so you didn't right. ask those questions. I was like going. Y'all, y'all was real with that one. That's a good, that's a good one right there. That's very funny. And it's <laughs> funny that there are parts of the Bible that people realize are contextual and of their time, but then the gay stuff isn't for some reason, you know? Right. It's like, we can't say that that was of its time and that's how people thought, you know? Somehow right. that is the uh, dogma that must stay around forever. Right. Yeah. That, this is the one that's like going, yeah, the linen and the cotton and silk and all the mixing thing. Yeah, that's old school. But the gay thing, oh, that still applies. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. Wait, wait, the, what? <laughs> the picking and the choosing. And then the other part of it, what I wanted to talk to you about, was the black part of it a little bit more, too. Because for, you know, we know in, black community is not the only community, but where it's even tougher to be gay 
or to be out at a certain period, it's certainly easier now. But uh, mm-hmm. that must have weighed in you. Was there any thought that you were, did it affect how you felt as a black man at all? I know that sounds like a weird question, but. No, it's a, yeah. it's a very, very wise question because it did impact my relationships with black people mm-hmm. in general. Um, for a long time, I felt like an imposter when I would go to NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists. Sure. Mm-hmm. I would go, but there was always like a level of discomfort because I could feel the judgment mm-hmm. and I could feel the disapproval. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to push past that because I knew this is where I belonged. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned Bayer Rustin earlier. Mm-hmm. When I found out who he really was and what he really meant to the community, that was completely transformative for me because all of a sudden now, I had armor, right? Because Dr. King's number one mentor in nonviolence was an openly gay black man who was so boss, he was openly gay like in the 40s and 50s before we even had a damn rainbow. So I was like, oh, well, he's gangster and the cut like that. Who am I to be walking around with my head down going to a journalism conference? And that transformed everything for me. And what I love today is that, to your point, you don't see a lot of queer people of color, particularly black people, having that same kind of hesitation. I mean, mm-hmm. Lil Nas X is just out butt-ass naked in his last yeah. video. He's taking it to the next level. He's just like, right. He didn't need yeah. no Bayer Rustin moment. He's <laughs> no. just out there. <laughs> he was an SNL. In fact, he took it to such the next level, his dick couldn't even stay in his pants. It was like, sorry, Lil Nas I just right. have to get out too. Cause you, you to came celebrate. out. Why can't I come out? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sitting there like, because you know, I'm older now, but I'm sitting yeah. there like going, damn, where was your ass when I was struggling in the cut? <laughs> yeah. He, you know, he is a disruptor in a sense because it is different. You know, he's in an art form where there's a lot of hostility and that sort of thing. And he's celebrating like black queer body, you yes. know, which is, yes. you know, and that to me is that extra tab is not just saying I'm gay, but no, I'm also going to lust after body and show Black you that. Men. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, it's, it that's, is so, that's a disruptor, right? As far as I'm concerned. Man, mm-hmm. It is so dope what he is doing because queer Black love is a political statement. Yes. Whether you want it to be or not, because we're so trained culturally to distrust, if not dislike and hate black men. Mm. Um, and so for <sighs> a black gay black mm. boy to say, mm-hmm. I prefer the company or I want to be surrounded by the one thing that America says I should hate mm-hmm. is a powerful statement in and of itself. Mm. And to do it to your point in a genre that isn't as accepting I guess. Uh, and hostile. Like <laughs> and downright hostile in many ways, too. Let's be honest. I was, you know? I was trying to find a more, you know, <laughs> we're keeping it real. We're going to keep it real. Keep man. it a hunting on this show. No, absolutely. I mean, listen, and it's been, to, it's been acknowledged, too, you know, by many of the it, artists. You know? it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. I used to love me some DMX. Mm-hmm. And, D, and, and, and X would come at me with some stuff, man. And I'd just be in my house like, or. Damn, man, for real. The D didn't not stand even, for Dick. It song. did not stand for Dick in DX. No, it, it did not. It, it, it did not. And X didn't stand for extra large. So it was like, um, and but but I mean, like, 
like Jay-Z has some lyrics that are problematic. Obviously, Eminem mm-hmm. got in trouble multiple times. Right. The very first time I actually wrote a sports column about homophobia mm-hmm. came from Alan Iverson's album mm-hmm. way back in the day when he dropped an album back in the 90s. And he was using homophobic slurs. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't tell me I was going to be the reincarnation of Alan Iverson. Mm-hmm. So that hurt my heart yeah. to have to like write that piece about him in that way. Mm-hmm. Because as a black man, I was so proud of him, mm-hmm. right? And as a gay man, I knew he hated, mm-hmm. or at least it felt that way. And it was just like, what am I supposed to do with these feelings? What right. appears to be a conflict, but they're mm-hmm. quite at peace with me. And mm-hmm. so I love to see you know Lil Nas X just out there. And I was like, going, I was. He reminded me of Omar from The Wire, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because I was like. Omar is always fucking some fine-ass motherfuckers. <laughs> he ain't doing ugly. He's doing fine. And so right. when I look at Little Nas X, I was like going, he ain't just got any old brothers up there dancing with him. Right. He's got some fine brothers up there letting you know, oh, I right. know what I like. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. When you talked about AI, it made me remember when Kobe, remember when he called yeah. the referee, uh, the yeah. F word, I'll say, you know. And, yeah. you know, that. And I love Kobe. Exactly. But that also exposed how that word was, you know, just kind of thrown around and nobody thought anything of it. I mean, I mean, Kobe's in a stadium full of people on the bench yelling that he's not like whispering it. He's yelling it at the referee and it's a televised game. Yes. You know, (laughs) and uh, I thought that was an interesting moment. It's kind of it's not talked about that much, you know, but. He had to, I, I can't remember what he did afterwards, if he apologized or what happened. He, with he that. definitely apologized. I actually had conversations about him, with him oh. about it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he apologized. He actually became quite the advocate, yeah. you know, as like, as time went on. And so when Jason Collins became the first openly gay player in the NBA, sure. um, Kobe was one of the first ones to tweet support. Yeah. And that was really good to see because yeah. as I, as I said, I mean, when he said that, um, I mean, I loved Kobe, man. Yeah. That was just like the dude. And I was like going, for real, man? I know, yeah. For real? <laughs> but 10 years earlier, 20 years, no one would have thought anything of it. It's it's right. funny how something like that at the right time can open a door. And you're right. Kobe is very fascinating because I think Kobe was somebody who was interested in evolving because he definitely yeah. evolved over his career. You can't compare the early narcissistic Kobe to the later you know, girl dad, Kobe, you know, right. Just, right. I always like to say, um, the transformation that began when he started getting tatted up. (laughs) (laughs) It was was like, I'm not sure where this is coming from, but there is definitely a different version of you with these tattoos than the one you had before. It's interesting that, um, now we have more athletes, uh, coming out. Carl, uh, Nassib, is that how you pronounce his name? Carl, Carl Nassib. Um, for the Raiders uh, in football, football is one of those sports which feels kind of tough. It do you feel it? Will sports allow more of this to happen? Do you think is there one sport where it's tougher? Is football kind of a a tougher sport for this to appear in? I, I mean, I have no idea. You know, football is so interesting, Larry, because it is both the most toxic environment, yeah, in terms of masculinity. 
and quite possibly the gayest sport we have in this country. <laughs> yes. I wrote the, the one of the first shows I wrote for was the Living Color. You know, we did the uh, the, the Super Bowl halftime, and I wrote the men on the men on football men on sketch. Film. Which yeah. yeah, you couldn't do that sketch today, you know. But you right. know, but every innuendo is absolutely what you're talking about, you know, with football. Just, you know? When yeah. I was hosting, um, you know, five years hosting a co-hosting a show with Keyshawn Johnson, you know, in L.A. Yeah. I would tell them all the time. I was like, oh, man, that shit is so damn gay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And the fact that y'all are acting like it's not, mm-hmm. is even gayer. Like, and you can't even acknowledge the joke in wide receiver and tight end because you're too right. uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny because gay people have been in football for so long. Rowan Gabriel here in the Rams was gay. Rosie Greer. <laughs> wasn't Rosie Greer gay? Came out later. Was uh, it? I thought you got me on that one. I thought so. I thought Rosie. I'll was. add him to the ledger when I get back to the committee meeting. I add him to the ledger. Yeah, I hope I'm not saying that wrong. Um, but uh, there uh, in baseball, I know there were some players who who came like out. Burke yeah. famously um, came out later in life. Unfortunately, passed away from complications to AIDS. But mm. you know, Glenn Burke, um, along with Dusty Baker, um, his teammate at the time, created you know the high five. Yeah. And, you know, whenever I see guys do it now, I'm like, God, thank the gay man. Yeah. Thank the gay man. <laughs> thank the <laughs> gay man. Thank the gay man. Just like with computers, like Alan Turing, the, the sort of like the sure. godfather of computers. Yeah. You know, if like whenever someone tweets me, it's like something homophobic. Sometimes right. I hit them back, like, going, thank you, gay man, that you have this technology to say this homophobia <laughs> to me. that's hilarious uh so where where are we in football with that do you think that things are gonna he's gonna be fine Mm -hmm. i I, I honestly do believe he's going to be fine my my issue has always been regardless of which sport it was going to be wasn't necessarily the leagues themselves or even the ownership though that obviously will be problematic but it was about the fans Mm -hmm. you know it's about the people in the stands what happens when the alcohol starts flowing Mm -hmm. and the game results aren't what you want them to be. You know, we know what fans do when a college kid misses a potentially game-winning field goal. They threaten his life. They say he should kill himself. They, they, you know, they do all sorts of evil things on social media and they boo him and they torment him on campus. And that's like, you know, missing a field goal in a college football game. So I'm like asking myself, you know, what happens when the Oakland Raiders um, or the Las Vegas Ra- Raiders, rather, are losing and, you know, Carl Nasa makes a boneheaded play, which may happen. You know, is he going to be booed at the same way that any other player who makes a bad move or a bad play will be booed? Or will his boos take a different turn because of his sexual orientation, mm-hmm. right? So those have been more of my questions in terms of what do we do going forward? Not the leagues themselves. I mean, Roger Goodell has an opening gay brother. Uh, Paul Tagliabue before him had an opening gay son. But it's the fans. You know, mm-hmm. what do we, how do we manage the fans? Because we don't want them to feel as if they're being policed to the point in which they can't boo. Mm-hmm. But we also don't want a place where homophobia will have some comfort in those stands on Sundays. And what about the locker room? You know, that's going to be interesting, too. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of guys who are already was aware of him or previous Mm -hmm. teammates. You know, Charles Barkley famously said he's had so many, you know, 
gay teammates, everyone knew it wasn't a big deal. Hmm. Um, it was about not being out to the public again. Hmm. Um, John Amici, former NBA player, talked about the same thing. Teammates knew, um, mm-hmm. but the public didn't know. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't think the locker room is going to be that big of a challenge for him. Sure, there'll be people who, you know, wouldn't want to be naked around him. Mm-hmm. Um, usually those guys are people no one, nobody wants to see naked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is although athletes like, athletes are in the best shape of anybody, most of them, you know, except those offensive linemen. You know, well, nobody was, wants to see them naked. Like, like the, the yeah. offensive linemen, yeah, no one wants to see them naked. I don't know if you got a mirror or not, bro. But <laughs> you, you, you good, <laughs> right? This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. I've always thought about the next level, too, because um, this is where the Black comparison has some uh, intersections, I guess, and that's in positions of authority, you know. When I when I did the White House Correspondence Center for the president, and I mentioned, you know, when we were born, a black man couldn't even be the quarterback of a team, you know, because right. white people didn't want to be led by a black man. That was revolutionary, right. let alone the leader of the free world. So in my lifetime, you know that. But I wonder about that too. Like, will we see gay men coaches, you know, and leaders of other men in those type of fields too with like to me that's that next step being in that leadership position where the straight men are following the gay man in a sport you know well you know it's a it's a very good question because there's an aspect to it that is so narcissistic and self-important it almost makes me want to vomit uh-huh. because we know that gay men are leading units in our in our military absolutely yeah. And they have been for as long as we've had war. Right. And the reason why um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was instituted and then eventually repealed was because we're very much aware of the fact that there are LGBTQ people in the military. Yeah. And many of them are in leadership positions. So they're already being led by gay men in what I would call a much more dangerous situation in a much more critical situation than a football game. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about, um, you know, following a gay coach or things like that, I just go, why the fuck do you think catching a football <laughs> is somehow a higher stakes situation right. than going to Iraq? Yeah. You know, and I felt the same way when it came, when it comes to transgender individuals as well. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, so you want to kick trans people out of the military. Um, but you're too much of a fucking coward to actually mm-hmm. join and take their place. Mm-hmm. But you have just enough courage to tweet something nasty about them. You know, fuck you. That's an American hero right there. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is nothing but hate and prejudice. And you don't even have half the courage that it takes to be openly trans, let alone fight in the military. But you have all this energy where you can get in front of a microphone if you're an elected official and say these awful things about trans people. Or you can tweet something off about trans people. So I always found that that conversation about 
leadership and whether or not men will follow women or follow gay men or trans people. So fascinating because we have way higher stakes in which we've already proven that's okay, mm-hmm. but somehow sports is different in this. And the only reason why it's different is because we don't challenge that narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the trans uh, issue has developed a whole nother set of opinions and, and issues out there that not even the, the gay issue has, you know, right. and people, and people have fallen all over uh, across ally lines, you know, not knowing where to stand in some of these things, you know, um, why do you think it's complicated things so much? Well, there are, there are a lot of things at play. Number one, the science is something that we struggle with. I mm-hmm. shouldn't say the science. I mean, no, rephrase I, I, that. Science yeah, is absolutely. something that we struggle with. Just what the definition of testosterone, right? Just, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, science just in general, right, Larry? Yeah, like, right. Think about it. Like, we can't convince people about climate change. Sure. Despite the data and the science. Sure. You know, we have drug laws when it comes to marijuana and marijuana prohibition. That's mm-hmm. not driven by any science at all. It's mostly just perception of yeah. what we think might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, in some ways, it's no shock that the issues in terms of trans athletes, whether it's in high school or college or the Olympics, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard for people to understand because in this country, science is just hard for people to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, you got people going, well, I had the shots. How come I'm still getting COVID? It was like, going, well, here's the science. The inoculation that you had doesn't put you in a bubble wrap and make sure that you never come in contact with another germ ever again in life. It's to keep your ass out of the ICU and die. See, I'm not so mad at those people. I'm mad at the ones that say, I haven't had the shot. Why am I getting COVID? <laughs> 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 those are the ones well, that, that's, um. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to point you to the governor of Alabama, oh. Kate Ivey, who basically said, it's the unvaccinated people who are causing problems. And when you get Republican governors in the South saying, I've had enough, yeah, <laughs> you know, I things know. have gotten crazy. It's but the science, that point, yeah. the, the, the science of it all, Larry, mm-hmm. is, is is something that's just foreign to people to begin with. Okay. Then there's the visual perception, right? Okay. Um, some trans women in particular present differently than others. And mm-hmm. so people kind of have a natural response to that, that some might be rooted in curiosity, a lot of it's rooted in prejudice. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, there are just some people that want to see the world burn. And even though they know good and damn well trans women are not running around raping, you know, cisgender women in public Mm. restrooms, it makes for a good story to drum up enough fear to get enough money for fundraising and perhaps enough votes to get you back reelected. And there are enough elected officials who don't care about the lives they destroy in doing that in order to maintain their power. And that is probably the biggest driver of all elected officials mm. willing to gaslight all of the the world, if you will, about this conversation solely so they can get four more years or six more years or two more years. Yeah. And also the fear at the heart of it. And it's interesting how rape has always been used as a cudgel, you know, right. in these hate. I mean, 
black men accused of rape, so we it's okay to lynch them now. And now trans people right. being feared because rape might happen, you know. Like, right. when did you become so concerned with rape? Because when straight men are raping all the time, there doesn't seem to be the same concern, you know. It's the craziest thing. It's like, mm. going, oh, these trans women, they might rape my daughter in the bathroom, mm. but the rapist on my football team just ran for 10 yards and got a first down. All right. Well, I mean, what, what, what are we doing here? Whoa. <laughs> what are we doing? But the rapist, you know, his comedy show was really good. And he, <laughs> so, oh, so we're, we're going to forgive him because, you know, uh, I love some pudding pops. I mean, so it's like we yep. pick and choose. <laughs> I haven't forgotten about that motherfucker either. <laughs> You know, it's funny because we also live in the age of the um, activist athlete. There seems to be more acceptance for that now. The, you know, Michael Jordan famously said, you know, Republicans buy tennis shoes too. I wonder, can would there be room for a Michael Jordan type of superstar now who's apolitical? Well, I mean, Tom Brady. Right? Is he apolitical? I suppose so. I mean... If you got old dudes hat in your locker, yeah, and democracy yeah. is being attacked on January sixth, you, you you're chilling on your right. tw- on your Twitter account, yeah. But but when it's time for you know TB twelve gym facility to be reopened or some shit like that, you is you it found because, Twitter again? <laughs> is it because he's white though? Could a black superstar athlete be apolitical? Um, because we've never required it from our white athletes. We never have required it from our mm-hmm. white athletes before. That is definitely true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a black athlete can certainly still be apolitical mm-hmm. as long as they're apolitical on issues that weren't dealing specifically with race. Like okay. you can't duck blackness, but you can certainly duck other things, right? Like one yeah. of the things that, you know, was a signal to me that LeBron James was making a, a paradigm shift is when he started using his platform to endorse the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. right? Hardcore policy issue that... Yeah, that's politics. On, right. But that's politics, politics, right? right? Mm-hmm. And that is him inserting himself in a, in a policy legislative discussion right. as opposed to, as a Black man, I'm fearful of X. Right, or let's end poverty or something like that. Oh, right. right, exactly, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that depending upon the conversation a black person, a black athlete can still be apolitical. But when it comes to criminal justice reform, when it comes to voting, mm-hmm. um, the black community, we're just not putting up with that anymore. You mm-hmm. know, we're just, we're just not, you know, we're not putting up from larger society and we're not putting up with it from people who have platforms mm-hmm. that are trying to still play both sides or soft shoot issues because George Floyd got murdered in front of everybody in broad daylight. Um, and the guy who was killing him gave zero fucks about the repercussions. And I think when people saw that in general and black people saw that specifically, and when I saw that, everything about my, my priorities changed. Mm-hmm. I would still try to like, you know, in fact, if you go back and look at my columns, <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say this now. Mm-hmm. But when you go back and look at my columns, mm-hmm. the week before George Floyd, was murdered. I wrote about Pat Tillman and Memorial Day weekend and his patriotism. Mm-hmm. And then George Floyd was murdered. And I haven't been back down that road 
sense. Mm. I'm like, you know what? Fuck that. That will always have a place mm-hmm. in this country. Sure. Celebrating a white guy sacrificing for the country and being patriotic. That mm-hmm. story is never not going to be told. Mm-hmm. But what hasn't been told is all of this. And so I just made a, ch- a, a choice that I was no longer using my platform to uh, write about issues that I knew were going to be wrote about, written about someone else. Someone else was going to take care of that. But no one else is going to talk about these stories. And that's why God kept me. And that's why I'm in this platform. And it's irresponsible for me not to speak on these things. Mm-hmm. And so, so ever since then, yeah, I've just been different in everything that I do. Mm-hmm. Everything. You know, it's just playtime is over. Mm-hmm. They're killing black brother. They killed a man in broad daylight in a major city by a police officer with his hands in his pocket. Mm-hmm. So, Ironic- no, Ironically, not to make a fine point, but What's interesting about that is that, and I just uh, found this out maybe a few months ago when I was watching the tapes, his hands actually weren't in his pockets. He had black gloves on and his his hands were just resting on on his leg. But because of the black gloves, it looks like his hands are in his pockets, which, wow. ki- which gives a completely different feel to it because it is more casual to just put your hands in your pockets, but his hands weren't in his pockets. And I go, oh, that's interesting. I never mm. looked at it like that because... That that hands in pocket gives you an immediate right. uh, feel about that. That hands on legs doesn't, you know, not that it makes it better, but it is right. interesting how images are seared that the fact that you would say hands in pocket mean that it had an, an effect oh, emotionally. Absolutely. Right. But his hands weren't in his pocket, you know. So it is interesting, you know, how something like I'm, that. I'm surprised you know, his lawyer didn't bring that up in the trial. Yeah, I've, I had never heard anyone talk about it. I observed it kind of on my own. I went, oh, wait a second. His hands aren't in his pocket. I thought they were in his pockets the whole time, but he was wearing black gloves. Hmm. Like, go back and look and you'll see. Oh, yeah, his hands aren't in his pocket because he's freely moving his hands at some point. He's, and he puts it on his, on his, when he puts it on his pants, it looks invisible in many of his Absolutely. It looked like he had just put in a pickle. Yeah. Uh, some spearmint bubble gum in his mouth. Exactly. And was just kind of, you know. I'm just killing this nigga today. What else do I have to do? I got to <laughs> exactly. pick up my laundry. Exactly. Let's see. Let I me, let's see. I think, my list, I think my list is in my pocket. Let me get it out of here. <laughs> Damn it. That's some lint in there. You know. I was thinking he was like going, well, shit, the last one took only seven minutes. Why are you still? <laughs> such, such gallows humor. Oh, uh, my God. It's, yeah, but it is interesting. The, you as a journalist, of course, I feel that responsibility, but it is interesting for me when I see athletes, you know, because I feel like uh, one of the reasons like I may have brought this up too is I don't feel like athletes should feel the pressure to have to be an activist on things if that's not who they are, you right. know. But I don't want you to be an activist. I just want you to be real. Right. You know, like like activism, it's like a specific function, right? With a right. specific goal and you thought about things critically. You might even be part of an organization, et cetera. I'm not looking for any black athlete or any athlete at all to be an activist. But I am sort of hoping that you would be, you know, human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sort of hoping that you would be a black man if, if that's what you are. 
Because if you're a black man and you see what happened to George Floyd, I would assume, you know, there would be a response just on an individual basis, you know? Right. I don't I don't need you to tweet out, you know, ACLU, you know, links and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to be able to say, God damn, that's fucked up. I yeah. think it's, it's, a, it's a safe sure. sort of you know, thing to watch. To see. Yeah. Um, it feels like the next uh, form of activism. Uh, I'm going to be generous with that word is self-advocacy, you know, is something that we're seeing more of uh, Naomi Osaka you know, mm-hmm. advocating for herself, you know, for mental health, even Aaron Rodgers in a weird way, you know, because right. he's offered a lot of money. So what's his problem? Well, he's advocating for himself in some of this, you know, we haven't right. really heard, but I don't know if that's the best example, but Naomi certainly is. And I feel like athletes are feeling maybe more uh, open about expressing their relationship with mental health, which to me I think is a really good breakthrough because mental health, especially in the black community, is so under talked about. Mm-hmm. It, it, it absolutely is. Some, of, I think, some of that has to do with our, our religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. You know, take it to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> and so it sounds as if going to a therapist is an antithesis of that, right? You shouldn't right. be going to a therapist. You should be taking it to the Lord in prayer. Yeah, let um, Jesus take the wheel. Why isn't Jesus taking right. the wheel? Yeah. Why, why you got your wheel? Put your hands on the wheel. Take your hands off. Um, not, you know, never thinking once that, you know, maybe Jesus put that person in position because he can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you know Jesus can drive is my question. You know, when did, they didn't even <laughs> have cars back there. <laughs> yeah. He didn't walk everywhere. So. If he could drive, he never would have been on the cross. He would have gotten out of there. Right. And he's got an Uber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so I think that's part of it with the role of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, two because we didn't see images of black therapists or people or black people going to therapists. It mm. sounded like it looked like some white shit. Mm. And then three, it also looked like some rich white shit. Mm-hmm. Right. So all these things are completely foreign to us. And then number four, and you know, this black folks don't like talking about our business like that. Yeah. Especially it's in the, putting family. it in the street, putting it in the street. We don't like yeah. it in the street That's like so that, true. And, that is so true. And even yeah. though, you may sign all these confidentiality letters, you know, yeah. blah, 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 blah. There still is a discovery. It, it took me a while, even in my own therapy sessions, to be real with my therapist. Mm-hmm. There was still a part of me like going, yeah, but <laughs> I don't really know you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so wow. I'm having some issues, but I'm not going to tell you all my issues. So right. I need to see how you handle these issues first. Exactly. And then I might give you some more. No, that's so true. There is that relationship. It's so funny, you know, <sighs> how you choose to put it out there, you know. Uh, but, you know, we may turn a corner where the sports gives permission for your average person to seek these things out. Because, you know, when we talk about Obamacare and we talk about universal health care, mental health, that part of it, I hope is talked about more, especially mm-hmm. the access to it, because that's one of the other barriers to entry is the costs of it, you know, mental health right. costs, seeing a psychiatrist, getting help or a therapist or whatever it is, you know. It, it, you know, it, it really needs to be a dramatic shift that hopefully not just athletes, but also Republicans mm-hmm. lead. You know, because things like therapy, meditation, yoga, mm-hmm. like these things all have like a liberal sort of tent to them. Whether mm-hmm. it's true or not, 
that's what it feels like. Tree hugging, if you will. Right. Mm-hmm. Hippie talk. Sure. Um, getting more people who are conservative to talk openly about the importance of therapy as mm-hmm. if they're talking about going to see a physician for their, for their bodies um, would be very helpful. And then when it comes to, to professional athletes, um, we have to find a different way of talking about failure. Mm. Because right now, we still characterize failure in sports when it comes to men anyway, as you were mentally tough enough, you were right. soft, et cetera. Well, so that true. language doesn't encourage people who may be dealing with mental health issues to want to seek help, yeah. right? And especially in a sport like football, um, where the, the aspect of toxic masculinity is so high mm-hmm. that the smallest sign of weakness right. gets jumped on by the masses to break you because the goal of football is only the strongest survive. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for humanity, if right. you will. And even and- if you do have a mental health episode, Larry, it's okay if you're crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're on the football field, and you're just out there. Ah! Right. That's acceptable mental health issue. Mm-hmm. But things like anxiety, mm. depression, right. those aren't acceptable things. And yeah. so the way we talk about success and failure in sports needs to change as well. Yeah, you're so right. People accept it more of the meta world peace type of what they called uh I don't know if crazy is the right word, but you know what I mean. You right. know? Yeah, exactly. That, exactly. As opposed to the Kevin Love anxiety one. I exactly. remember when Kevin Love came out about that and people are like, mm. and yeah, you're right. Using the word soft and all that. And right. all that. But anxiety is real. You know, I had Michael Pollan on my podcast last week and we were talking about psychedelics and the use of it to kind of, you know, address things like anxiety and depression in a different way because a lot of those issues to me don't uh like there's nothing that can actually cure it but you need to develop a different relationship with it and psychedelics help your relationship with things doesn't necessarily cure something you know it allows you to have a different experience with something which is kind of kind of interesting helps you process your reality in a different way exactly without it you may not consider takes your judgment out of it you know, yeah, so. exactly. This is part of the reason why I write a lot with alcohol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and I mean I, if that's what I, you're I, telling yourself, then good for you. Yeah. <laughs> but I, told, I, I, I honestly totally understand now why so many great American writers turn out to be alcoholics. Ernest anyway. Al- exactly. Alcohol yeah. helps you lower your inhibitions right. that allows everything to come out unfiltered. Yeah. So I write drunk and edit sober. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go back. I I'm doing it the in. wrong way. I'm writing sober and editing drunk. What? A, no, wh- no, why no, did no. I not figure this out? <laughs> oh no, man! I mean, people always be like, "Going, man, you were fire on that cop." I'm like, "Going, y'all have to see that shit before I was sober." Exactly. <laughs> before that shit got pared down, you should have seen. It. That was a that forest was fire. Yeah. You should have heard what I really said. <laughs> right. That's so funny. All right. You know, I so thank you for having this conversation. There's so many great issues out there, and I love that you're on the forefront of it. When I have to give you props too. I love how, like, when I hear you on the radio, you're so open about you know, just who you are and everything when discussing sports. And I appreciate that, you know, like I think people who are in your position, the broadcasters are making a difference in that acceptance, you know, in the same way that 
I felt many female reporters being able to be in the locker room kind of opened the door for girls to embrace sports in a way that they hadn't before. Just just right. their presence of being there. So I just wanted to give you props for just your and it's not never forced. You have a natural integration of just who you are with what you're doing, you know, and I think it's really it's really cool. LZ. It really is. Thank you so much, brother. It's it's been a long journey. Yeah. And I'm still on that journey. Right. It took me a long time. Mm-hmm. to even acknowledge that a male athlete was attractive. Yeah. So even when I got to ESPN, I was still cognizant of how I was being perceived right. and never right. wanting to be sexualized or sexual in mm-hmm. any way because I didn't want that to be used against me. Right. And then one day I saw Bryce Harper and I was just like, oh, you know what, this is bullshit. That motherfucker fine. I just need to say it. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> it, it, it was Bryce Harper and the body issue. And right. I was like, Oh, I was supposed to pretend like I don't see this. Oh, that's the Sports Illustrated to... where everybody's naked. Is that the one? Yeah, uh, ESP in the magazine. Oh, ESP in the magazine. Sorry, ESP in the ESPN magazine. The magazine. Yeah. And I saw Bryce Harper and I was just like, so I'm supposed to just pretend like this shit yeah. don't exist. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's so funny. Yeah. Meanwhile, all the dudes next to me are going on and on and on about the female athletes. Right. Magazine. Exactly. Right. And it's okay. And I'm sitting yeah. there all asexual and shit like Jack exactly. from Willie Grace. <laughs> exactly. See that that to me is a quiet revolutionary act. You know, yeah. it's that QRA just sitting right there in front of everybody. You know, which just, is just I'm just trying just to chilling. make it easy for the You're next generation. Chilling. Yeah. Man. Last thing, what's up with my Lakers next year, man? What are we gonna do? Well, I'm training. Um, I know we need a point guard, so I decided to give it another shot. I'll take you over you know? Schroeder. <laughs> you might not have a choice. <laughs> I know. I just didn't like his attitude. I'm like, nigga, get out. What are you doing? You're a Laker right now. What's wrong with you? You're playing with LeBron. I, I, I will say when I heard that he won $100 million, yep. I was like, shit, me too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. Yes. But listen, the number one thing, and, 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 and Lakers fans needs to, need to remember this. Mm-hmm. We didn't lose in the first round because we weren't a good team. No, we were injured. We lost because we were a hurt team. Exactly. We were an injured team. Yep. And so I don't want anyone to look at that roster and that roster construction um, as a failure. Mm. We were hurt. We were, I have we were some, hurt. Mm, we were, I mean, we were, I felt we were hurt and we were hurt team too at certain positions. Like we really didn't have the same rim protection that we had the year before. We did not. And that was so important to allow AD to roam wherever he wanted to roam. You know, that was definitely important. It was actually really important. I'm glad you brought that up because during the beginning of free agency, I repeatedly talked about the need to bring back Dwight Howard. Absolutely. Over and over again. And people were like, they can't shoot threes. They can't do that. We didn't need that. I was like, let me tell you something. You don't value the vertical space that they occupy. That's right. LeBron James does. Yes. You know, he led the league in assists, and I'm pretty sure three to four assists a night came simply from lobs. Right. And if you if the Lakers are playing a team like Milwaukee, uh, you have um, 12 fouls that you can use against Giannis with Dwight mm-hmm. and, and McGee. And JaVale. Right. That's 12 fouls. <laughs> you right. Know? right. That is right. some stoppage power there, you know. Plus, yeah. plus we know AD is going to get him some a little bit. And plus, we know LeBron's going to get him some a little bit. Exactly. It it would have been different if they had brought those guys back. Absolutely. But I also still feel that, especially when you look at the way that we started last season, Mm -hmm. 
and then AD gets hurt, yeah. and then LeBron gets hurt, and yeah, the wheels fall off. Yeah, so I, I think it was more injury driven than anything else. Um, yeah. I would like us to get a point guard, but more importantly, I would like us to recapture that vertical space. That because would be great. When we do that, um, we're, we're we're impossible to beat. It makes a difference. I mean, why are we ignoring like? 60, 70 years of what makes basketball easier. (laughs) Like, why are we ignoring that? Hello, do you know what makes basketball easier, you guys? Being tall. That makes basketball easier. It it, it was like, and I was trying not to sound like an ex-NBA player because God knows I'm not an ex-NBA player. Right. But I am like going, y'all don't let analytics fuck y'all up. Absolutely. You're thinking two-pointers are bullshit shots, and if it's not a three, it doesn't count. Meanwhile, the finals is dominated by two pointers right now. Exactly. Right? Like, like exactly. There was some three point shooting, but really the entire series is about Giannis controlling the paint, Chris Middleton shooting, you know, within the restricted area as well as like 17, 18 feet out. Mm-hmm. Chris, Chris Paul, probably the greatest mid range shooter as a point guard we've seen. Maybe Steph Curry's better, but he doesn't take as many mid range shots. Yeah, but Chris right. Paul, obviously, is a great mid. I mean, like, these are all two pointers. Right. Two pointers are okay. You know why? Because they're more than zero. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting too. Giannis now, the face of the NBA for the time being, you know, international guy from Greece mm-hmm. and everything. And it's funny, the noise around Otani in baseball being kind of the yeah. face of baseball, international roots, you know, from Japan yep. and everything. I To me, that whole discussion was more about baseball losing its grip as the national pastime more so than who was the face of it. You, you know, that is an excellent point because. Because we don't have a problem with Giannis. Be, baseball is really having a hard time figuring itself out yeah. in today's culture. I think so. Too. You use the phrase America's pastime. We don't have pastime anymore. It's pastime. Yeah. Right. We don't got time for a pastime. So right. it's like, who who are you if you're baseball and your entire brand is about the family spending all day at the park? Mm-hmm. They're still trying to figure out what that means. And as a result, who represents the new baseball model is important as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean to America's baseball if a Japanese player is the face of? They didn't care that baseball was no longer a place for black people. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they didn't care. But now it's like it's not a place for white people. Because if we do this and we start balancing that with Tatis, then it's like, oh, uh -oh, hold on now. What's 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 going on? I think I, I actually have a small disagreement with that. I think it's a big place for white people. I think it's not a place for black Americans anymore. Really? Absolutely. If you look at uh, who's playing baseball, like who are the kids playing baseball? It's, mi- it's middle class kids who have money and they're playing in these leagues. And and college baseball is mostly white kids, you know. Well, I, I, I wasn't uh, referring to the Mike Trout. in terms of... Mike Trout, like our, right. people say he's the best in the league right now. You talked about Bryce Harper. Like there's a lot of, of, of uh, breakout, you know, the, the white baseball star, but in terms of the American black baseball star, like it's just I not was, the same. I wasn't right? necessarily referring to the part in which players are on the come up or yeah. participants of the sport. I was referring more to the culture of the sport 
Uh-huh. And this notion of there's a right way to play the game. Is it a, is it American thing? Like we're, it's, it's losing its Americanness. I think it's losing its mm-hmm. Americanness. It's what it's what I meant by white people losing the sport is uh-huh. that it's losing the aspect of the culture of baseball mm-hmm. that used to be closely tied to a white sensibility. Right. You know, so when you got brothers from like the Dominican coming in, bat flipping, bouncing, and, and doing X, <laughs> Y, and Z, and yeah. the pushback is. That's not baseball. That's not the right way to play. And it's like, mm, no, you're uncomfortable with that because mm-hmm. now you're beginning to see what inclusion means. So you were cool with diversity, but inclusion means that you actually allow the person to bring their whole selves to an environment, the cultural mm-hmm. aspect of it, the way that they choose to express themselves, where they choose to dress, how what they do with their hair. That's inclusion. Mm-hmm. Baseball was you know, Jackie Robinson on getting used to the idea of diversity, they're struggling with inclusion. The NBA struggled with inclusion. You know, it took them mm-hmm. a, a minute to figure out, okay, we tried to make the black people dress up. That didn't work out. Well, what should we do? <laughs> yeah, I just I just have an opposite opinion about this. I feel like oh, sorry, fine, yeah. Well, I'll tell you why, because I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like they have a problem with capturing the imagination of the young black kid, it's the opposite, mm. not trying to tamp down that expression in baseball. It's the complete opposite. It's like the expression isn't capture their imagination of the young black kids as well. Wow, I want to be like Tati or I want to be like this guy. Like, no, they want to be like LeBron. They want to be like Dame Dollar. Right. Yeah, no, 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 you're right. But I, I would say that we're saying, and the it might same be culture. I, I think we're saying the same things because I agree with you. Baseball is having a hard time of capturing the imagination of young kids as well as adults. Mm-hmm. And I would say right. part of the reason why is because there are other places we can go to see inclusion, to see mm-hmm. us express ourselves, to see us celebrate and play hip hop or, or reggaeton or whatever our brand of music happens to be culturally. Mm-hmm. And baseball felt as if they were trying to say still no to those things. And because they were saying no to those things, there wasn't like an entryway that we felt comfortable going into it. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you. I mean, when I was growing up, there were black players, you know, St. Louis uh, Cardinals were like. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that was like, you know, that was like Georgetown basketball for a second. <laughs> I mean, Dwight Goodenwood, he was doing on the mound in the 80s and that right. kind of stuff. Go back to Vita right. Blue and Bob Gibson and those type of pitchers who was blazing superstars. Reggie Jackson, like like that type of star power just seems to be missing in it. That's what I mean about it, capturing the imagination. And it could yeah. be the, it could be something about the game itself. Like I, I honestly don't feel this, but I, I disagree with a lot of people in this. So it's not, it's not so no, much no, that I no, disagree no. with you. I, like, I, I want uh, disagreement because I, I, I don't know everything. No, 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 no. But I feel it's something about the game itself. And I think when you talk about it being just, you know, what would you change then? What do you think? I don't know if you can. Howard Cosell in the 80s called it a 19th century game. He said that in the 80s about baseball. He called it 19th century. He felt it was too old back then. There's something <laughs> about um, what, what the people who love baseball, you know what the thing they care about in baseball? Mm. Stats. You right. know? And you can't right. really watch stats. But anybody that loves baseball, the first thing I'm going to tell you, oh, he batted four, you know, two, three, right. two, blah, 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 blah. And then right. the strikeout that. And it's all numbers. But in basketball, it's like, did you see that dunk? Did you see right. who got posterized? You know, right. and it's more about the action. Football. Did you see that touchdown? 
But baseball, right. it's a little too uh, nerdy well, isn't the right word, but it's a little too in the head, you know. Well, I, I think there's also, you know, the fact that baseball really is an individual sport masquerading as a team sport. Right, right. It's the combination, and, like in Goodfellas, or not Goodfellas, but uh, The Untouchables, where De Niro gives that great speech about baseball. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. right. It's like, it's really like batter versus pitcher. Individual achievement. Individual <laughs> achievement. And because of that part of it, um, it feels slower. Like the competition yeah. between the two isn't more immediate. Right. You know, like the play at the rim, either someone's getting dunked on or someone's getting blocked. And right. it's going to happen within seconds. And in these other sports, your stars are going to clash all the time. But Kershaw might not be pitching in the most important game. You know, your <laughs> right. star, exactly. you know, exactly. Your stars aren't necessarily going to be clash. It's not always the clash of the Titans. It's, right. you know, whose turn it is. You know, it's George Carter said, who's up? Are you up? I'm up. You know, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I'm the third day. We're only on the second day. What am I exactly? It's do? like, why can't we see the best people? And it's so, um, there's this unpredictability about it that doesn't quite work anymore. You know, I, I think right. it's the, the game itself. We've just lost our fascination with the game, which is we why. Just get rid of it? But this is why, you know, but it's why somebody like Otani's interesting because he's doing something different that you can see. He's right. pitching and hitting. And so you're right. seeing that. You're like, wow, who the who does this? You know? You know, it'd be cool if he said, How come brothers can't hit and pitch at the same time? <laughs> Go on and start that fight, bro. Talk your talk. See, now you went back to the gay thing. Pitch and hit. See? You had to bring it back to that. I'm just pointing no, out. I can't you help just, myself. You just can't say All right. Well, LZ, thanks so much, man, for spending the time. Uh, guys, the podcast is really, really cool. What is it? Is it on a network or something? Or So, uh, so Life Out Loud is anywhere where you will listen to podcasts. Anywhere you so listen to podcasts. Spotify yeah. and iHeart. And it's, you know, it's been a really wonderful journey. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I've never been this gay before <laughs> <laughs> wow that is an interesting statement you have so many nuggets today that's so interesting i've never been this gay before i've, I've never yeah. been this gay before yeah. and i'm trying to process is it because i'm not this gay mm-hmm. or because i've been conditioned not to be this gay yeah and so this journey particularly during season one has also been an, an, an introspective one right. where i'm asking myself okay are you like this because you're like this or because, mm-hmm. you know, you've, this is how you survived growing up in Detroit and mm-hmm. this is how you survived in media and this yeah. is how you survived in sports and, blah, blah, you know, and mm-hmm. on and on and on and on. And so every now and then I'll go back and listen to the early recordings as we're editing. Right. And I go, Oh, look at me being comfortable talking about Dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or look at me being comfortable talking about share. Or right. whatever the fuck it happens to be. I was like, well, huh. All right. I guess I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> you will be the stand-in for the rest of America. Just getting comfortable with this. LZ Granderson, everybody. Thanks so much, LZ. Thank you, brother. Thank you so, so much. Yeah.